right. Well, today we are beginning Genesis chapter 27. And uh, my plan today is hopefully to get down through about verse 17. Uh, the last couple Sundays we have been in chapter 26, and uh, which has, uh, as I had, as I had mentioned, was is kind of parenthetical. It comes right in the middle of the story of Jacob and Esau. It kind of interrupts the story of Jacob Esau and goes back and talks about Isaac. And we talked about some of the reasons why the Holy Spirit does that. Uh, with that chapter and some, of course, the things that the content of the chapter, the story of Isaac that's uh, that's set there for us in that chapter. Uh, so before we go on now, then into chapter 27, why don't we go back and just kind of try to refresh our minds? What did we talk about last week or the last couple weeks? Well, a lot of this story earlier where it's from envy and how important it is to be like Christ. Christ did not grasp or hang on to his glory. He trusted God. He humbled himself and let God glorify him. And a lot of this, there's so many people trying to get it themselves yeah. instead of letting God do it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and that's... Uh, uh, to make the connection there, that's what we saw at that particular stage in Isaac's life. The story we're going to, the picture we're going to see of Isaac today is not as complimentary, <clears throat> but this is one thing that we see earlier in Isaac's life is his is his willingness to depend upon God to accomplish uh, what only God could accomplish. Yeah. What else? You talked about the blessing bearer. Uh huh. And the handoff, interestingly enough, wasn't just father to son, but actually God had to mm-hmm. make sure that the handoff was done and that, and that it was very clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that ultimately, finally, will be the case with uh, with Jacob, too, we'll see, but it'll take a while. <laughs> it'll be a painful process for Jacob. You were going to say something like that? Yeah, I was thinking... Uh, <clears throat> Everywhere you went, you get water. Every time you move, it's kind of like God's sign. Even if, you, if you're in my will, you give up this well, but you move on, and there'll be another well. So you got to see God's hand looking wherever you went. That's instructive, isn't it? Uh, sometimes we're reluctant to move because we feel pretty good where we are, and we've got what we need, and we don't want to uproot and, and move on in the Lord's will. But... That's a, that's a good a good uh, illustration. The point related to that, we didn't specifically talk about, but it's kind of in there and it's pretty obvious. Uh, but I was noticing whenever I ran across um, verse verse twelve in chapter twenty six, uh, before before we go to verse twelve though, when Abraham died, it says that he left everything. Mm-hmm. And he was really rich and wealthy and mm-hmm. almost probably a kingly. Mm-hmm. He left everything to to Isaac, yeah. And then, so Isaac got all this stuff. And then it goes here in verse 12, it says, he uh, sowed and he reaped the same year a hundredfold. That's a huge increase. 
And then if you keep reading down there, it says that he was blessed and he became rich. And I forget which verse it is. It says he became exceedingly rich. Yeah, yeah. And then he digs these wells and has to move and finally digs in the place and there's no quarrel. And then he says, this is really interesting to me, he says in verse 22, Alas, the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful. Well, yeah, well, you know, I, yeah, maybe, or, you know, I think he kind of meant it in all respects that, you know, God's given us a good place here and, and now we can really, you know, grow and expand. But, you know, we think about Isaac and we think about Isaac's prosperity, but he has a whole house. He has this whole, we say household, but we're talking, you know, several thousand people probably at this point. And and so it would involve their prosperity and you know too. So he's concerned about. I would assume he's concerned about their prosperity and room for them and their families and provision for them and all those sorts of things. That is a sign from the Lord that I don't have to pay any attention to the clock today. <laughs> what did you What did you do, Kevin? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Uh huh. It's not very satisfying, is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a related proverb that I was speaking about in context of this. It's just the blessing of the Lord that brings wealth and toiling will add nothing to it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know all that means, but if God's not blessing it, it doesn't mean anything. It means a whole lot of work and not get anywhere. Yeah, yeah. This whole deal so far is only been one major complication. Yeah. So just the knowledge of when to move on and when to figure. There comes time that it's time to stand up. Yeah. And there's other times it's like. Yeah. How did Isaac. How did Isaac manage to do that? I mean, you know, like I said several times over the last couple of weeks. You know, I'd I'd want to kind of get my back up a little bit on some of those things that he confronted. How, how, what was it about Isaac that made it possible for him to respond to those conflicts the way he did? He was raised watching Abraham. I mean, Abraham listened to God. He didn't listen to full advice or Okay, he had a good had a good example in his father. Yeah. Uh-huh. He had the promise. Yeah, he had the promise. He just he knew. God said, you're going to be here for a while, and while you're here, you're a sojourner and an alien. And he knew that, and, and so he lived like that. And, uh, and so he didn't feel like he needed to defend those things which were not presently his, but were promised to him. He didn't feel like he needed to grab for them. Uh, we're going to see a stark contrast to that today. <laughs> in our story today. Well, we could go on and retalk last week's lesson all the way through, but let's don't. Let's go on to chapter 27 and pick it up now in, uh, in verse 1. He says, Now it came about when Isaac was old 
And his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. Uh, Isaac said, Behold, now I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now behold, please take your gear, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Rebecca was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went out to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there that I may prepare them as a savory dish uh, for your father such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father that he may eat, so that he may bless you before his death. Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and then I will be as a deceiver in his sight, and I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as her father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the young goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. She also gave the savory food and the bread which he had made to her son Jacob. Uh, let's go back. Uh, momentarily and pick up the last couple verses of 26 uh, because I meant to include those. We didn't get those talked about last week. There in verse 34 it says, When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite, and Basement, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And then the other verses, of course, the other story follows. And I forgot to read those two verses because we want to talk about those a little bit. But uh, just by way of introduction to the passage we're going to be looking at today. We are now, we're, we're leaving the story of, of, uh, of Isaac that was kind of inserted here as a parenthetical story, if you will. And, and again, what was the point? What was the purpose of him inserting this story of Isaac into the story of Jacob and Esau? What is he trying to emphasize? Okay, he's trying, he's trying to remind us of what is at stake. That this issue of the promise and the blessing and the birthright, what all that involves. And by looking again at the life of Isaac and seeing all these blessings in the life of Isaac and seeing those times when God spoke to Isaac, uh, just reminds us again of what actually is at stake here. Okay? Uh, so we're, but we're leaving that parenthetical uh, story now and we're coming back to the story of Esau and Jacob and the struggle between them for the birthright and the blessings. And in this passage, uh, one of the things that we're going to see is we're going to see uh, kind of four characters and how each one of these four characters kind of illustrate for us some things that we ought to hope don't happen in our own lives so that we don't become like them. Okay, so we'll be looking at that as we as we go forward today. Uh, 
uh, going back there in, into the end there of 26, those last couple of verses, I said we didn't get to those verses last week, but, but right at the end of that story about Esau in, in chapter 26 is this little comment about, uh, about Esau and his marriage to these two women. It refers to them as Hittites, which are actually a, 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 a subgroup within the Canaanite uh, group, Canaanite uh, uh, line. And so, so what Esau has done here is he has married two Canaanite women. And it says that they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, he doesn't elaborate on that. that. That'll come up again later in the story. But even there, it's not real clear uh, from the text what that grief is. But I think it's fairly safe to assume uh, when we think back about Abraham and when Abraham wanted to pick a wife for Isaac, wanted to find a wife for Isaac, what did he stress to his servant who was going to find a wife for Isaac? What did he tell him was really important? Go back to my homeland. Why? Did not want him to marry from the among the women of the Canaanites. He's very specific. Abraham did not want a wife from among the Canaanites. Okay, and so what we see here with Esau is that Esau has disregarded this principle that was so important to Abraham and was apparently important also to Isaac and Rebekah that 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 their children marry within the promised line. Now. Now, Esau is going to make an effort to remediate this situation later, and he's going to marry another woman, but it really just makes things worse, okay? But, but the issue here is that the, the thing that's important about this passage is that we see something else about Esau's character. Is that, is that in the promise that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden, and then again in the blessing, of, the blessing and curses that Noah issued on his three sons, okay, What we see is that God has made a promise that he is going to send a redeemer through this, what I've called the righteous line or the line of promise. Okay, and we follow that down up to the time of Moses. And then Moses, of course, is the one from the from the line who makes it through the flood and starts things over again. And then he has his three sons and 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 of course, Ham right off the bat. Uh, messes up, and that results in a curse on Canaan specifically. Okay, and, uh, Ham's son Canaan, and and so so we have this contrast between the cursed line and the line of promise. And what what Esau has done here is he has disregarded the importance of this promise and of and of marrying within the promise line. And if you remember back right before the flood. There were two reasons that were given to us before the flood for why it was necessary for God to send the flood. And one of those reasons was that the, that the sons of God were marrying the daughters of man whomever they chose. And as we explored that verse, we found that what he's talking about there is that the descendants of the righteous line were marrying whomever they chose indiscriminately and outside of the line of promise. And that's exactly what we see Esau doing. So Esau is doing one of the things that actually led to the necessity of the flood and the judgment of the flood on the earth. So what Esau has done here is a pretty serious thing. Okay? 
under the under the uh, under the current administration, we might say here, the way God is working at this particular point in redemptive history. This is a very serious thing what He has done, and He has. So, so Esau has not only now despised his birthright, but in one sense he has despised the promise of God that through this promise line would come a redeemer, and that's not important enough for him to wait and go find a wife from among uh, from among his family back in Haran, but rather he takes two wives from among the Canaanites. And I believe that this is the primary thing that it's referring to here when it says that it brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah, that they saw in their son that carnal mentality that disregards these higher eternal spiritual values that are represented in marrying within the line of promise. Okay, so so then we go on into the story and and we encounter this this really ugly scenario. I mean, you know, talk about dysfunctional families. We've you know, I've t- talked and I tried to make it clear to you. Isaac loves his wife and we've talked about all those precious things between them and but but there's you know probably in every family there's a little bit of dysfunction you know I'm pretty sure there is in my family we won't go into that this morning uh, but I'm sure every family has a little bit of dysfunction and and certainly we've got it here with Isaac uh, and Rebecca and that's going to come out it's really an ugly situation we've already looked back in chapter 25 that they had that they played favorites with their sons that Esau favored, uh, excuse me, Isaac favored Esau and, and, and Rebekah favored Jacob. Do you remember why back in chapter 25 it says that Isaac preferred Esau or favored Esau? Pardon? He hunts. Yeah, he goes out and hunts and he gets all that good game, that good food that, that Esau is so uh, enamored by. Okay? And... You know, it doesn't seem to make a big thing out of it back in chapter 25, but when we get here to chapter 27, it's a big thing. Six different times in this 17 verses that we're looking at this morning, it refers to the food which he loved or the savory dish. Six different times in 17 verses. So it's like he's really emphasizing this. This is a thing that, that, that Isaac is fixated on, is this whole issue of food and, and, a, and a good dish. Okay? Now, we all like good food, of course. But but there's there's an emphasis on it here in this passage that seems to indicate us indicate to us some things about about Isaac and his values. Uh, but um, uh, just as, to kind of set the context a little bit here before we go any further, it mentions here that he's quite old and that he's so old that his eyes have grown dim. Okay, Now, we don't know exactly how old he is, but uh, various commentators have done analysis of other passages who tried, tried to kind of, back, uh, kind of calculate backwards to figure out how old he is here. And, and it, it all really hinges on how long Jacob actually spends in his uh, exile, if you will, or his sojourn in Haran. Of course, we haven't gotten to that part of the story yet. But he spends a period of time in Haran. It was probably anywhere from 20 to 40 years. And depending on how long you think that that time in Haran is, uh, helps you determine the age of Isaac at this particular point in the story. Uh, but, but basically, the time range is somewhere between 117 and 137 years of age. So we're talking, he's, he's somewhere in the range of 117, 120 to 140 years of age. So he's getting along in years, okay? But we find out later that Isaac actually ends up living to be 180. 
So even though in this passage he seems concerned with the possibility of his death, it, what it seems like here is at this particular point in his life he's quite sickly. And, and he's beginning to think in, in terms of his mortality. Uh, but as it turns out, he ends up living uh, for, for many more years after this. Okay? But he is old. And, and the thing that Scripture points out to us here, because it's important for the story, is that he's blind. He can't see. Okay? His, uh, the age has taken a toll on his eyesight. I can relate. <laughs> but uh, but uh, fortunately, I can still see and Isaac couldn't. But the thing that several commentators bring out, and I, and I think it's a perceptive observation, is that what what's really important what's in this passage is not Isaac's physical blindness, but it's his spiritual blindness. And his, his physical blindness really serves... Of course, there's an explanation for why the story unfolds as it does, but it also serves as a metaphor of Isaac's spiritual condition at this point in his life. That he has really gotten really, to some degree, spiritually blinded, at least in some areas, maybe not in all areas of his life, but certainly in some areas, because what we find here is that he is, he is intent and he is about to pass this blessing on to his oldest son. But in doing so, what is he ignoring about Esau? Pardon? Okay, so he's married to he's married to these pagan women, and we know what the scriptures teach about the influence of these pagan women. Do you think he knew about the exchange between Jacob and Esau? Well, I was thinking about that yesterday. I assume he did, but I don't know for sure. But, but I would think if I were Jacob, I would have wanted to make sure Dad knew. You know, so I, I assume he did, but I don't know for sure. You got some thought on that? Well, I was wondering if he knew about it. If he did know, was he deliberately going against God's will, or any? Kind of thinking like a lawyer, you know, okay, well, is that kind of thing even enforceable? You still use both sides of the house. Yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, today, today, it would be challenged in court, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter what kids decide, but parents give it in the will. I think it's okay, what you guys yeah. said. I'm going to give it to you. Well, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that very question yourself. I was thinking through the passage. And, and of course, as I said, we don't know for sure. But again, I'm thinking Jacob would want to know his dad. We'd want to make sure his dad knew, okay? So I'm assuming he knew. But while it may be true that he may have tried and thought, you know, I can get around this, what, he, what is he ignoring in that reality? If he knew. Well, yeah, he's ignoring the problem. But, I mean, specifically about the selling of the birthright, what is he ignoring there? What is he blind to? Esau's attitude. See, that Esau despised the birthright, the Scriptures tell us. So, so even if Esau's th- or if Isaac's thinking, well, you know, that's not, you know, you know, I can do what I want with my, you know, with what's mine, I can give it to him. Even if he is thinking in those legal terms, what he, what he is blind to here is the spiritual condition of a son who would despise the birthright. So he's he's blind to what his son has done in marrying the pagan women. He's blind as we've just said, to the spiritual condition of a son who would despise the birthright 
and he's blind to the oracle given to his wife, the word of God given to his wife, that this blessing was going to pass to Jacob, to the youngest. And so what we what is really startling to me here is to find a man who began so well in life and think about all the great things we said about Isaac beginning at Moriah and all the way through the chapter we looked at last week and all the wonderful things we saw about, about Isaac and we get to this point in his life and he's gotten older and he's gotten to be spiritually blind. And I, I wonder about that and I think, how does that happen? You know, how do you get, how do you make that journey from that young man at Moriah to this old man at Beersheba? And how do you move from this, this young, obedient son of Abraham who submits to be offered up on an altar? And then when he crawls down off of that altar, he actually witnesses the living God speaking to his father and giving, giving to his father a promise which subsequently then is given to him. How do you move from that to where this man is now in his old age and he is so blinded to the spiritual condition of his son that he's determined to go ahead and do something that he knows that God has said it will not be that way. And, and, and I don't know all of the things that transpired. I don't know any of the things that transpired in Isaac's life to get him to that point. We do see by this point in his life that he's fairly sensual. That, that's the idea of the emphasis of the savory food and the dish that he loved. It's the idea that the guy is somewhat sensual. But I do think of Jesus' parable about the seed in the New Testament. Remember? And he talks about the different kinds of ground. And one of the kinds of ground he talks about is the thorny ground. And he talks about how the seed is sown and it's received with joy, he says. But what happens? Over a period of time, that seed is choked out by what? The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And, And I don't know what went on in Isaac's life. But I do know one thing. It's a warning to me. And it's a warning to you. I don't know if it's all that. I think about the Scripture sometimes. You see why people do things. You can look in your own life and it's not hard to understand. I might all just call it being hard-headed. You know, there are times in my life where I've ignored the COVID spirit just because I was set on doing something I thought it was right. And then even after things begin to tug me that's not right, I say, no, I'm, that, that's what I want. I'm going to do it. It's got to be right. And this has got to bless it this way, too. And well, yeah, I think uh, you're, you're probably right on some of that. And in some of that, some of this phenomenon you're talking about, we're going to see in Rebecca as we move forward into Rebecca's part of the story, too. Well, another aspect of that that I'm thinking about as a father, it is, it's really hard to observe something in one of your children and to think uh, I've got to address that I've got to put my finger on that and let them know because I, I think I see it well no it's probably not that bad yeah. you know it's that kind of deal and then to actually take out the initiative to do it yeah. uh, it's, it's pretty uncomfortable and so yeah. like 
I can imagine he had children with that too. And yes, what, I'm thinking he probably did see it, but whether he did or not, he didn't want to address it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and isn't that really what spiritual blindness is? Spiritual blindness isn't typically total blindness. It's an unwillingness to see what's really what God is putting before our eyes. But what is really but but the lesson I'm trying to take away from Isaac, and I hope you will too, is this, just because you started well doesn't mean you'll finish well. And and that and that as we go on in life and we get older it's very easy for the cares of this world to choke out what was initially a joyous reception of the Word. And we can become like Isaac as time goes on in our lives. We can become like Isaac where we become progressively indifferent or insensitive to the eternal values and the spiritual things. And what's really at stake here, we've got to remember what's at stake here, folks. What's at stake here is the promised Redeemer. That's what's at stake here. The promise that through Abraham and through Isaac and through Jacob, the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's what's at stake here. And, and, and Isaac, for whatever reasons, if he's just being stubborn, if he's, if he's, if he's completely lost sight, clearly... He set aside these things that you and I can look at Esau and see so clearly. He set those things aside in his mind, whether he's completely blind to them or or just in the stubbornness and hardness. He set them aside and in doing so, in in one sense, his heart has become hardened to those eternal spiritual values and eternal spiritual things. And... And so he moves forward on this plan to pass the blessing on to his son. Now, remember, he's making a distinction between the blessing and the birthright, apparently. Uh, maybe he's not. Like Mike said, maybe he's linking together and still think he thinks he can override it. I, I don't know. But, but, or he may be making a distinction between them. But it's very clear that God links them together. And to God, in God's mind, as we saw in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, they are one and the same. Um, so, so he moves ahead with his plan and he calls his son and he sends uh, Esau out. Uh, but there's a glitch in the plan and the glitch is what? Rebecca, Rebecca is the glitch. <laughs> Rebecca is the glitch, okay? She overhears this conversation. I, I don't think that was completely, reading between the lines here, I don't think that was completely by accident. I think... Rebecca's probably had her ears tuned for this conversation for a long time because she's been determined that her son, that her favorite son is going to get this blessing. And I'm sure she's been paying attention to everything Isaac has said and all the inclination in Isaac is when he planned to do this so that she could be ready to act. Okay, And so she overhears that Esau is about to act. Excuse me, Isaac is about to act. So she overhears this. And and she's now in red lights and siren mode, <laughs> okay? Because this is an emergency, right, folks? I mean, what's at stake here is whether or not her favorite son is going to get what she thinks he ought to get and what God said he would get, okay? And now she hears that within a matter of a few hours, it's going to be passed to Esau, okay? So... She's got to act. 
Okay. Now, going back to what we know about Rebecca, what kind of a woman is she? She's type A, folks. <laughs> She's type A all the way. She is, yeah, she is in her element. And there, there ain't no way this is going to happen, folks. There just ain't no way. Now, I like Rebecca. I made that clear when we first got introduced to her back there in chapter 24. I, I like Rebecca. I think she's a cool lady. Uh, I'm glad I didn't have to be married to her. But I think she's, yeah, Rick. <laughs> I don't know if she really realizes Oh, yes. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. And it is clear that she's in tune. And the narrator makes that clear to us in the story. I want you to notice in the passage, what does Isaac tell Esau to do? Read it to me exactly. Somebody read it to me. What does he tell Esau to do? Okay. Now, somebody read to me Rebecca's report to Jacob of what Isaac said. Rebecca said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game to prepare a savory dish for me, that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. What's the, what's the difference? The phrase, the in, presence of the, in the presence of the Lord. Okay. Now, we don't know whether Esau actually said that phrase, excuse me, Isaac actually said that phrase to Esau, but the narrator doesn't record it. But he does record it in Rebecca's report to Jacob. And in doing so, what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us here is that, is that there is a spiritual sensitivity on the part of Rebecca that doesn't exist, apparently doesn't exist in Isaac. That, that, that Rebecca is sensitive to the fact that this is something that's done in the presence of the Lord. In other words, this is something God is paying attention to, folks. This is something God cares about. Okay? And so what she's saying is, is, that, is that Isaac is about to bless Esau in the presence of the Lord. God's paying attention to this. And God's putting His stamp on this thing. And she recognizes the spiritual dimension of it. But not only does she recognize the spiritual dimension of it, but she communicates that spiritual dimension to whom? To Jacob. Okay? And I think that tells us something about the relationship between uh, Rebecca and Jacob. Now, as, as Mike observed last week, and I think it's a good point that he brought up, you know, we were talking about the contrast between Esau and, and Jacob and that Esau just you know, totally despised and disregarded the promise and all that sort of thing and that Jacob loved it and wanted it. And Mike pointed out that Jacob was nevertheless you know, substantially carnal in all that. And I think that's true. But I do think that we have a suggestion here in this passage that he has been trained 
to realize that there is something more at stake here. That, that in Rebecca's dealings with her son Jacob, she makes it clear to him, I've got word from God about you. And these are, these are, these are things that have to do with things that are above and beyond us. Now, I think that very clearly is Rebecca's heart. I think that I think Rebecca is spiritually sensitive here. I think she, uh, as Rick pointed out, I think she probably knows that in this case she's more spiritually sensitive than her husband. And not only is she spiritually sensitive to these issues, but she tries to convey that to Jacob, not very successfully. I mean, she probably conveyed it successfully. He just didn't hear it very successfully. So what I understand, what I see here is that Jacob has heard these things and he knows these things. And I think to some degree, he probably acknowledges them on some, you know, minimal level. But he hasn't yet reached the point where he lays hold of it spiritually. And that won't come for many, many years yet. Okay. But so here we have a, a woman who is, uh, I forgot I didn't have a clock up there. I better get my watch out here. <laughs> uh, uh, so here we have a woman who really is spiritually sensitive. And she recognizes to some degree there are spiritual issues at stake here. And, and I was going to say, but she's a type A woman. <laughs> but that's an unfair thing to say because we're all like Rebecca at times. And what we have in Rebecca is someone who senses the spiritual issues at stake, but nevertheless falls into the trap of trying to address those, physical, those spiritual issues from the flesh. Okay. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. With Jacob, if what I said about Jacob is true at this point, with Jacob what we have is a guy who has just kind of a, an elementary understanding of spiritual issues that have been taught to him or trained to him by his mother but but they've not grown to maturity he, he Jacob reminds me of the people that that the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 5 he says you've been you've been around all this time he says and by this you ought time you ought to be teachers but you have need for someone to teach you again the elementary principles of the etc and and so what I see in Jacob is a guy who's just a spiritual neophyte. He's, he's, he's spiritually immature. He's been taught these things, but he's not really laid hold of them. And so if we take all four of these characters together, I think there's some instruction here uh, on, on the pitfalls that we can fall into. And I think there's some instruction here on Satan's ploys to disrupt the work of God. One, we have Esau, who is completely indifferent and callous to spiritual issues whatsoever. Again, to use the parable of the soil that Jesus uses, he's the rock. You know, he's the rocky soil. The word falls on the rocky soil and just blows away or is eaten by birds. He's just totally indifferent to the things of God. Then you have Isaac, is a man who starts out spiritually alert and spiritually sensitive. But for whatever reasons, over a period of time, he becomes blinded 
and, and, and then we have Jacob, who, who has the, just the seed of spiritual awareness, but he's never cultivated it. He's never developed it until he's become mature with it. And so he's vulnerable. And I don't mean that in a sense of a victim because he's certainly culpable here. But he's vulnerable to, to the temptation that's placed in front of him at this point because he's not, he's not gone on to maturity with spiritual things. And then we have Rebecca, who is, who is very, I think, very clearly very spiritually perceptive. She has the Word of God. She knows the Word of God. She values the promise of God. She wants it for her son. She covets it for her son. She desires it greatly. But in the crisis, she defaults to the flesh. And and that's not as uncommon as it might seem, that you could have really spiritually perceptive and sensitive people who try to do really spiritual things in the flesh. Okay? And, and I really do believe that that is the chief ploy that Satan uses. And the reason I say that is because we see it in the temptation of Jesus. Right? The three temptations in the wilderness... And, and one of them, he takes Jesus up on the mountain, and what does he say? What does he offer Christ there on the mountain? All the glory and the, of the kingdoms and everything, and all the peoples. He says, look at all of that. All the glory of the nations. It's all yours. I will, it's been given to me, and I give it to whoever I wish, and I will give it to you. Now, the reality is those things really do ultimately belong to Christ, don't they? They've been promised to Him, right? But how was Jesus to get those things? Pardon? Through His own obedience by the Via Dolorosa. That's how He was to get it. To walk the way of the cross. But He's offered a shortcut. Here's this great spiritual thing. The Son of God having all the kingdoms of the world. You know, that's, you know, you don't get any more spiritual than that, folks. All he has to do is bow down and worship Satan. So, Rebecca really serves here instructive to us because we might think, well, gee, I'm not like, I'm not like, Esau, where, you know, I just don't care about spiritual things at all and blow them off. They're not important to me. And I'm not like Isaac because, you know, I can see these things. I see what's going on. And I'm, and I'm not even like Jacob. I'm, you know, I've been around a while. I've been around the block and I've got spiritual maturity and I know. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I get blindsided by the temptation that Christ was hit with and was not blindsided by. To try to do through the instrumentality of the flesh the spiritual work. And church history is full of examples of that, isn't it? We look around us today and we 
I mean, look out here on the street, across the street here, this group that's protesting across the street this morning. People trying to do the work of God by the arm of flesh. And we see what happens. We see what happens with them. We see what happens with Rebecca. And we see what happens with Jacob. Well, so in those four characters, I just see four very important warnings to each one of us of the pitfalls and the dangers that, that lie out there wherever we are in this spiritual process. And, 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 I, and, I, and I don't want to be like Esau where the, that the eternal things of the Spirit just aren't important to me. And I don't want to be like Isaac where, where yeah, I've known him, and the, but, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches or whatever it is has come in and has choked him out and, and somehow I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just not perceptive anymore to spiritual things. And I don't want to be like Jacob who's just never grew up in the Lord. And I don't want to be like Rebecca. When given the work of God to do, I go, okay, I can do that. I can handle that. So Rebecca, picking on these type A personalities again, Rebecca kicks it into high gear. Okay, we're going to, you know, because it's crisis, folks. I mean, let's face it. What would you do if you were in Rebecca's place? It's a crisis. Well, that's my last question. But before we get there, <laughs> before we get there, she goes to her son, she gets her son, and she lays out this strategy to her son. What does he say? Pardon? You think so? Excuse me? He didn't want to see his father. Why? He's afraid of curse. He's going to get cursed. Okay. Okay. Jacob's answer, Jacob's uh, objection to his mother is not moral. It's pragmatic. Right? Yeah. I'm not going to get away with this. <laughs> you know? And if I don't get away with it, I'm dead meat. Okay? That's his concern. Now, the reality is, his, his mother convinces him he can, we can pull this off. Okay? Does he? No. I mean, yeah, he gets the blessing. But in all seriousness, did he ever think for a moment or did she ever think for a moment that Isaac wouldn't find out? I mean, how could he not find out? You know, eventually Esau was going to come home. Yeah, the only way to do it would be what Jacob's brothers did to Jacob, and that's killing. You know, and they didn't kill him, but they faked it. I mean, not Jacob, but uh, Joseph's brothers. Uh, so, I mean, they could have killed Esau, but I mean, just that was not obviously in their minds at all, thankfully. Uh, but obviously he's going to be found out. I mean, doesn't the Scripture teach? You know? Your sins will find you out. And he's obviously going to be found out at some time. And so he's concerned that he's going to be considered a deceiver and he's going to get a curse. Well, no, that doesn't happen. But he does end up being found out and he does end up being called the deceiver. 
So it all really does pretty much come down. It's just this whole thing just doesn't work out, folks. It just doesn't work out to walk in the flesh. It did momentarily. To walk in the flesh oftentimes momentarily seems to work out. But the long-term consequences are devastating to Jacob, to Rebekah, to Esau, and to Isaac. It's just chaos in the family from this point out. Okay? So, so she lays this trend out and he raises this pragmatic objection and she overcomes that by just pulling rank on him. She just says, I'll take the curse, just do as I say. And so he goes and he does it. And, she, and he brings it back and then she goes through this elaborate process of setting up this conspiracy. You know, the fancy clothes, the savory dish, the whole nine yards, okay? And in verse 17, we're left then with Jacob standing there as the end of the passage we're looking at today. We see Jacob standing there all decked out in Esau's robes and the savory dish in his hand. And the question is, what's he going to do with it? And the point that I want to make about Jacob is Jacob is being Jacob is being manipulated by his mother and and uh, and and he has you know he has some ugly things going on in his life it's, he's, you know the family's been somewhat dysfunctional and stuff but Jacob is accountable for what he does he's responsible for what he does and the question was just asked a moment ago what should they have done well I know one thing that Jacob should have done is to his mother he should have said no mom this is wrong that's what he should have done. Okay. But the bigger question is, we have a crisis. My husband is just about ready to pass the blessing on to an undeserving son. And he's going to do it very soon. And I ask the same question. What should she have done? What were her options? What were Jacob's and Rebecca's options? You don't have time to trust God. I mean, you only got a couple hours here, folks. Why didn't she do that? <laughs> what did you look at him for? <laughs> I'm glad my wife's not in this room. <laughs> we don't know, do we? Oh, excuse me. Well, we do know that the time to take action for a deal like that is not two hours before the deadline. Well, she didn't know when the deadline was. Another point. The time to deal with those kinds of issues is years and years back before where you have a conversation. And you're talking about these things. I, I don't know why that never did happen. Maybe it did happen. Well, you notice back here where it says he talks to his son and she talks to her son. That's in Yeah, there's obviously a whole family history thing going on here. I don't know why it apparently didn't occur to her to go talk to Isaac. But, you know, it could be they've had this conversation before. Uh, were you going to say something, Kevin? I was going to say, you mentioned earlier, that 
it appeared that her mind was already pretty much made up at this point in this sort of action. So if that were the case, then can I have said before that, you know, what should have been done hadn't been done yet. So it was a crash. This was kind of inevitable. Yeah. Oh, Rick? I mentioned she, uh, she was caring for an invalid at this point. Mm-hmm. So, so she, she may have felt like... I need to, I, I I need to handle this, yeah. 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 And see, what I was going to say is, the point is, we really don't know any of the answers to these questions, do we? We don't know why she wouldn't talk to her husband. We do know they've got a family history and things haven't been done right for some time. Okay, but we're talking about adults here now. We're not talking about two boys, okay? We're talking about guys that are, they'll do the math, they're, what, 60, 70 years of age here by this point, okay? We're talking about a bunch of grown adults, supposedly, okay? But have you ever been there? Given all the family history, given all the history of having not done things right, that doesn't help when you're in the hour of crisis, right? That doesn't help. I mean, the, the fact that you didn't stop at that filling station 30 miles back, you know, that doesn't help when you run out of gas. You still got to figure out what do I do now that I'm out of gas and it doesn't do any good to have somebody standing there saying, well, you should have filled up with gas 30 miles back. It doesn't do any good, right? I mean, we've all been there. We've had people say those things to us, right? But that doesn't help. We're in the crisis here. What are we going to do? What are our options now? Well, you should. I'm type A, and so I, and I do it all the time. And so, take it back and say, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I always think of it, Lord, forgive me that I didn't cry out to you. I don't see any other answer to this, folks. But had Rebecca and Jacob got on their knees... You know, and I mockingly said we don't have time to trust God, but you don't have any other options, folks. Their only other option was walk in the flesh and wreak the havoc they wreaked. And how often times have we been there and done that very thing? Folks, if we're in the crisis... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of options of how God could have done things. Yeah. He could, have, he could have blessed Esau and Esau could have said, I'm not worthy of this. I'll give it to my brother. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could happen. But none of them did happen because Jacob and, her, and his mother did not wait on God. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And they shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. It's a tremendously instructive passage, isn't it? Well, we're out of time. We'll go on with it next week. It only gets worse, folks. <laughs>